when I first started teaching, and I'm talking a while ago, um, I was the only teacher in my building. Um, I was the only art teacher in my building, and I didn't see a lot of other art teachers. I just didn't have the opportunity. Um, once in a while, the district would get together, and but I was in a small district, so there weren't a lot of art teachers in the district to begin with. So there wasn't like a lot of people I could ask when I had questions. But nowadays, <laughs> with this modern technology we have, there's podcasts you can listen to, like this super one, <laughs> or you can get on Twitter, you can get on Facebook, there's so many groups uh, that you can ask questions and, and you can find answers to questions like instantly people will jump and you'll get all kinds of variety of answers and responses. Um, and with, so with all this access, you would think that every question probably would have received a response by now, right? There shouldn't be any more questions to ask. But what I find is there is a core group of questions that are frequently asked and many times uh, the responses to these questions are similar. However, teachers who implement a teacher-directed classroom such as myself might see things slightly differently. So I put together a list of responses to some of the most frequently asked questions that I see posted, but from a choice-based perspective. So let's dive right in. All right, starting with question number one, and it is about grading. How do you grade students who don't try or don't care? I'm going to do a podcast in the future that totally deals with just grading. The whole podcast will be dedicated to it. But for today, we're just going to get a little bit. We'll just start with this one question and see how it goes and see if anybody listens to the podcast anymore. Uh, just kidding. Okay, so how do you grade students who, who don't try or don't care? I mean, our first reaction when it comes to student work and grading is usually straightforward, right? Students who work hard, they put in the effort, they complete the assignments, they receive high marks. <laughs> no matter how you grade, that's the way that works. And those students who don't, receive low grades. And as far as grading is concerned, that about covers it. Okay, there you go, we're done. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, we are right to handle it from that from that perspective, that's fine. However, from a student-directed point of view, which is the point of this podcast, looking at things from a student-directed point of view, there might be more ways to approach this situation, okay? So there is a dilemma that is often overlooked. To start with, let's say a student has turned in poorly crafted work um, that demonstrates a lack of caring. We're gonna start right there, but that's, that's the situation. This is not to be confused with a student who is trying their best, but doesn't have the ability. You know, in that example, like they don't have a skill set. Um, in this situation, we know the student can do better. Um, so we talk to the student and we, we explain that they're gonna receive a low grade because they turned in subpar work, which is, is right to do. And you're gonna get usually two responses that you're gonna receive from the student. So first, um, the student will begrudgingly work slightly more <laughs> on their art in order to improve their grade. Or number two, the student doesn't work and um, and that's it. And, and they just settle for the low grade. I think those are the, about the two. Maybe there's others, but we'll start with those two. So in the first situation, it appears to be a win, right? The student, they, they improve their work. Um, so that's a win. Uh, and, and the teacher improves the grade. So there's the win. <laughs> However, the thing is, <laughs> the student only did the work because of the threat of a lower grade. That was deemed to him a worse consequence. It wasn't because he wanted to make art or improve their skill set and anything like that. It was because they just didn't want to get a low grade. They saw that as a worse consequence than putting in just a little bit more effort. Um, okay. In the second situation, the, the student doesn't care about the work. And they also don't care about the grade. So in this situation, the grade is entirely irrelevant. Um, it serves no purpose. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's not to be confused with it's not earned or deserved, I guess you could say. Uh, you know, keep, we have to keep those two things separate. The student might deserve a low grade, but it's irrelevant. It serves no purpose because the student doesn't care. They don't care if they get a low grade. So from a student-directed position, the issue isn't even about grades. It's about caring. What? Yeah, we need to ask, why doesn't the student care about this work? And how can we help the student adjust their negative attitude? That's really where it comes down to there. I had a student in my class who didn't want to be there. Um, he, he did a little work like the first week of school, and then after that he just completely shut down. And uh, he, he just wasn't even trying. I mean, so I asked him one day, I was like, you know, don't you want to do anything? Like, why don't you want to work? Um, you know, try some watercolors, do something. And he just explained to me, he, I, I don't want to be in the class, Sans, I just don't want to be here. And I, I'm like, like well, what do you mean you don't want to be here? So, yeah, I'm not supposed to be here, I wanted to be in carpentry. I'm like, well, okay, you know, why don't you go take carpentry then? He's like, what do you said? You know, he had already taken it twice and there wasn't a way he could take it a third time, I guess, is what he was saying. So there wasn't a third level carpentry class. And so they stuck him in my class and, you know, he was angry about it. And for his coping mechanism, he just shut down. He didn't care about the art. He didn't want to be in the class. He just wanted to be in carpentry and he just was going to fold his hands and just sit there. <laughs> so I said, you know, I said to him, well, can you do me a favor then? You know, um, the other art teacher, she wants like a little small table because she's got this paper cabinet and she just wants a, a nice little, you know, cabinet that she can, um, a little table she can put the cabinet on top of. I was like, do you think you could just go in her room and just like do it like some measurements about like what a table would, you know, need to be built because you took the carpet class you could do the measurement and he was like really okay cool so he went in the other room he did the measurements he comes back and he does like a little drawing of what the table was like and i was like that's cool like that's perfect that's exactly what she needs i was like do you think you could go down to carpentry just ask the, the teacher if it would be okay if you just built that table because i knew the teacher was would be in on it and i actually talked to him later about it and he was totally in on it <laughs> so he went down there and he built this table and I was like, oh, that's great. And he brought it back and he put it in there. And of course he didn't do any more work. <laughs> so, so at about that time there was um, some APR kids and, and one of them was working on these really large, um, it was heavy paper, um, but pastel drawings. But they needed, they were just on heavy paper, so they were bending all over the place, and they just needed to be like framed. So I just asked the student, I was like, do you think you could like put a frame together for this, for this kid's, these pieces of art? And he was like, no problem. So he went back down to the carpentry and he built these like big, large frames. And every time this AP kid needed one, he'd go down and build them a frame. And like, so I was like, this is cool, he's starting to work. And then about that time, I had another group of students and they were trying to do, they wanted to do a giant hamburger, like this giant Oldenburg-esque McDonald's Happy Meal. So they made a big hamburger, they made this big bag of french fries, they made all these french fries out of um, like paper, like kind of bulletin board paper and stapled together, they cut it and they'd stuff it with newspaper and stuff and so it was it was pretty cool. And a big hamburger bun the whole bit. Um, but they, they could not figure out how to make the, the cup, like the soda cup. Um, they had a big straw and that was about it. And they were trying to make the frame kind of out of cardboard and they were trying to tape it together. It just kept bending and falling apart and they were just having a horrible time. So I brought in the other student. I was like, do you think you can help figure something out for these guys? And like he figured out how to make this very solid framework out of wood, cut round circle for the bottom, a round circle out of wood for the top that was bigger, and then cut all these slots along the side. And then they had this basically skeleton for this soda and even cut the hole in the top for where the straw would go in. And then um, they, they wrapped it up in paper and they painted on it, made it look like a McDonald's soda cup. So this situation went from where there was a student who would have been perfectly happy just to take zero, 
<laughs> who received, and then he received an A in my class because he just kept working on all these projects for these other people. And I know he was he wasn't doing what I you know what the projects were in class up until the point where he was working with the the students to make the McDonald's project. But he he started working, he started getting involved, and 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 it went from you know you know from a kid who didn't. Would, I guess he just would have totally failed. That's the bottom line. Because he, did, he didn't care. He wasn't going to try. Now, I can say, you know, this doesn't happen with every student that doesn't want to be there. Not by a long shot. I mean, this was a really special case. But it just kind of proves it to the point that, you know, we as student-directed teachers can always attempt or be attempting to find some kind of magic sauce that's going to turn a student's attitude around. All right, next up. Virtual teachers, what has been your most successful project for the students at home with no art kits? I think for the traditional teacher, this is a very difficult question to answer. And I say that because there is the assumption that if all the students were in class um, and they'd all be using the same material, when in school, when in person, it's not too difficult because you have a class set of materials, you know? I have a class set of watercolor palettes or I have a class set of printmaking materials. So, you know, with all the students working on the same project, it's not a problem. But with students working virtually, and without distributing art kits, this seems very difficult task to accomplish. Um, I, I think I would, I would either try to find materials um, I would assume most students have that they'd have at home. For example, um, projects completed in pencil or pen. You know, probably everyone has a pencil or a pen. Um, and that's one thing you could do, but you'll—it's going to be very limiting in that situation. So that's difficult. That's, I think of a, another alternative um, would be to use non-traditional materials. Um, I saw a project where students were uh, tasked with creating like a color wheel with using things around the house, just things they could find. So they'd find like a green soda bottle and a pink lipstick or whatever, and they can, they can make the soda bottle around around things. Um, another similar project I saw was uh, where they asked students to create an image using articles of clothing. You might have seen these projects online. They're kind of cool, uh, but. But again, pretty limiting. Um, this is one area, however, where the student-directed classroom really has an advantage. In a choice-based classroom, we don't have class sets. This is because students, they select the materials that they're going to create the art with. So for any particular unit, there could be just as many different media as there are students. You know, the chances that every student wanting to make a lino cut in a choice-based classroom just isn't going to happen. Um, you know, in the virtual setting, um, when they're at home, the students are still deciding which medium they, they will use. So the only difference is the student must rely on what they have at home. So they might have pen and pencil and they can use that because that's what they're going to choose. Or they might want to use non-traditional because they're making that choice. Or they might want to go to the store and buy something. It's up to them and their choice of what they have to what they use to complete the assignments. I go into a lot of detail about this in a previous podcast titled Teaching Media in the Choice Space Art Room. So if this is something you want to learn more about uh, and you're interested in it, give that podcast a listen. And I go into a lot more detail. All right. Question three has anyone had experience hosting a student teacher? <laughs> yes, I have once. <laughs> I was asked to host a, a student teacher once. <laughs> okay. um, I personally enjoyed the experience, and I think it can be a great way to share your experiences with a future teacher. However, in a student-directed classroom, uh, there can be challenges, <laughs> and this was the case with my student teacher, and it wasn't her fault. She did, she did great. 
The issue was the professor who sent her was expecting a traditional teaching experience, at least for the student teacher to have that experience when she was teaching. Let me explain how it works. Um, the way it was supposed to work it was that the student teacher would spend the first half of her time basically taking the back seat. She would just be observing, watching what I was doing, and learning about the class and everything. And then for the second half of her time, she would start to take over more and more responsibility, and eventually she would lead the class. Well, the issue was, when it came time for her to lead the class, her professor expected her to run a traditional teacher-directed unit. But the students, <laughs> they were already fully engaged in the student-directed program. So it was sort of a battle for the student teacher who was, you know, she was put into this very unfortunate circumstance, not because she wasn't doing a great job. She was. But um, but but from the, the expectations put on her from the from the professor, really. Um, now, you might say, well, you know, that could be avoided. You just make sure the professor sending the student fully understands, you know, how you run your program. And and that that certainly is good advice and that I would give. Um, however, in my particular situation, that was discussed up front. Like they knew about me and who I was and how I taught. Um, I just don't I'm just not sure that the professor was familiar with maybe the student-directed programs and how they work to the point where when she thought the student would be able to take over, it wouldn't have been an issue, a takeover as a teacher-directed program. Um, either way, that was my last student teacher because they never sent me another one. <laughs> so, oh, okay. All right, <laughs> next question. What projects do you do with early finishers? I see this question come up a lot. And um, in a previous podcast titled Product Versus Process, I touched on this on this issue. So uh, I'll quickly recap how I, how I talked about it on the podcast, um, that there are two methods of teaching that fall on a spectrum, if you will. Um, on one end of the spectrum is the product-focused teaching method. And this method of teaching starts with a product in mind that the students create. On the other end of the spectrum is the process-focused teaching method. And this method starts with the idea of the concept and the product is developed as things unfold. Now, in a product-focused lesson, the outcome of the project is preconceived. So there's a loose timeline for completing the assignment, um, and that's established by the teacher ahead of time. And I say a loose timeline because although most students will complete the project in the predetermined time frame, there's going to still be some students who need more time uh, and, and some who finish early. And that is where this, qu this question comes from. What do you do with these students, these students who finish early? And here I'm, I might digress a little bit, but, but I believe this question isn't so much um, one about the teacher or one that the teacher considers, but it's really rather one that an administrator considers because there's a lot of different names for it. But the one thing I hear thrown around a lot um, in, in the past has been time off task. Um, more, re more recently, I hear a term like working bell to bell. I'm sure you've heard some terms similar to this. The idea is that for some reason, it's not good for students to do nothing. They must always be doing, always, bell to bell, working consistently. Um, and I, initially, I think um, there's some merit to this concept, having students participate in school activities. It's why they're there. You know, um, however, and I think somewhere down the road, the idea was taken a little too literally, like that students should never have any downtime, um, that, that they, they should always be doing, doing, doing. And I'm really not sure that's always healthy. Um, but like I said, I, I was I digress. <laughs> Let me get back on point <laughs> um, to address the concern that we were talking about there a minute ago <laughs> with this early finishers. 
Art teachers, you know, they look for projects to complete for those who complete their projects. <laughs> in other words, for the early finishers. So, in a student-directed program, and I'm referring to those who follow that process-based method, there's no finish line, at least no predetermined finish line uh, developed by the teacher. So in a student-directed program, the student decides the materials they will use, they determine the skills they're gonna incorporate, and yes, they determine the scope of the project, and the scope includes how long the project will take. So they make the schedule and they decide when it's done. In a student-directed program, when a student decides a project is completed, they begin another project. <laughs> hey, I'm done, what are you gonna do? I'm gonna do my next project. They don't have to wait for their classmates to catch up and they don't have to feel pressure to catch up, you know, if, if they fall behind anyone else. You know, they work at their own pace. So the answer to that question, what projects do you do with early finishers? I don't do any projects with early finishers because there's no such thing as an early finisher. I've got a few more questions. I think I'm going to go through these a little quicker. You kind of get down to the like the rapid fire answers here. Um, quest, the next question, I just received a box of widgets. What project should I do? And by widgets, you can just insert anything because I think um, like quite often someone will donate unusual items to the art room. So the first reaction of the art teacher is to try to figure out a project that her students can do with the items, whatever it is. So they post a picture of the item and they ask their peers, hey, help me develop a project. Well. Instead of asking fellow teachers, you know, a teacher in a student-directed classroom might consider presenting the item to the class and asking the student to develop a plan for how they might incorporate the item into the project. <laughs> like, why are we as teachers always trying to figure out the projects? Why don't we let the kids do it? I'm going to tell you an example that, it's, it's not my example, it's another art teacher, so it's all his fault if you don't like the answer to this question, but Ken Vi. He is the author of From Ordinary to Extraordinary. I saw him um, do a presentation, I think it was in Seattle or New York. Um, in either case, um, he, he told a story where he once received a donation of seatbelts. So talking about uh, a, a not so ordinary item, like who would be like, hey, our teacher needs some seatbelts? Where do you get seatbelts from? But anyway, he got this donation of seatbelts. So he presented the seatbelts to his, to his students and he asked them, he's like, create a work of art based on the theme of safety. And that was it. That was the whole thing. Like, here's a seatbelt. You got to include the seatbelt into your art in some way and include the theme of safety. So, you know, instead of getting a class set of the same projects, all his students did something different. They all produced these individualized, rather personal works. Um, I remember him talking about one of them was the one I always sticks out in my, in my mind was oh, he was a football player. The student was a football player, but he had asthma. So he did sort of a self-portrait of himself with the football helmet and his uniform on. But he took the seatbelts and he put them across his chest like an X, like he was protecting his lungs. Even though he was I mean, from suffering asthma as a football player, I mean that's that's great, and that was just from that one idea right there. Hey, let the student develop the project; they'll figure it out. Next question: How do you keep students from copying your exemplars? Well, teachers often produce exemplars of their projects so that students have an example of what their finished project should look like. You know, uh, the downside to this is that instead of utilizing the exemplar as a source of inspiration, some students might just copy it straight out. So there's the problem. Um, but this issue is eliminated in a student-directed classroom, and I bet you already know the answer why, because there are no exemplars. <laughs> That's correct. Since a student is designing their own project, there are no previous examples to copy. Next question. What are your favorite and most successful projects for teaching a skill? 
That's a good question. This question is often posted regarding a specific skill. So for example, what is your favorite project that teaches the color wheel? Or what is your favorite project that teaches linear perspective? Um, and the teacher is most likely asking and seeking an engaging project that will produce a, a very polished product. Well, as you know, in a teacher-directed classroom, skills are not built in to the requirements of a project. It's strange, but it's true. For example, there would not be a project designed to teach the color wheel or linear perspective. Skills are taught differently in a, in a student-directed classroom. Um, for example, a skill might be taught as a demo or a mini, a mini lesson. And after learning this skill, the student has the option of incorporating the technique into their project or not. Um, you know, other times skills are taught on the back end. For example, a student says, I want to draw a house, so the teacher introduces the student to linear perspective. Hey, do you want to learn this skill so you can draw your house more realistically? But it's still up to the student if they want to do that or not. All right, how do you keep students engaged? Well, <laughs> engagement is kind of a, a kind of a recent buzzword in education, um, especially popular with administrators. <laughs> they want to see students working bell to bell, as we mentioned, right? And and teachers also want to see their students engaged. Well, of course we do. Um, though often for different reasons. Our teachers have a love of art, and so they want their students to share that passion. Sometimes, however, our students' enthusiasm diminishes, uh, so teachers ask this question um, to reverse the situation. Now, disengagement can happen no matter what your method of teaching, no matter if you're teacher-directed, student-directed, you know, there's gonna be some students who are just don't wanna get engaged. But the student-directed classroom does have an advantage, I think, because when students design their own projects, they have ownership of their work. So they're less likely to be disengaged since they selected the topic. <laughs> You know, why would you be disengaged if you selected the topic? You know, if, however, they do lose interest in their project, they're free to stop and begin anew. That's how artists work. Okay, last question. The last one of the day. How do you prevent teacher burnout? Wow. Teacher burnout is a serious issue. You know, going to a job and doing the same thing day in and day out <laughs> when one has no desire to be there is exhausting. Not only is it an issue for the teacher, it's an issue for the students. You know, enthusiasm is contagious. We'll go back to enthusiasm for a minute. The teacher that lacks it, they're going to have a hard time motivating their students. And to the extreme, you know, burnout can even lead to a teacher leaving the field of education altogether. I see posts like that, which maybe would have been another question. <laughs> what can I do besides teach with my skill set? But that's for another episode. Um, I'm just going to say it's it's really important that, that, that teachers suffering burnout find a solution to this very serious issue. So there can, there can, there can be many causes for teacher burnout. A student-directed classroom will not solve all of the reasons surrounding these issues. So, um, But for those teachers who are bored presenting the same projects, a student-directed program can bring a new perspective. Uh, working with different topics each day as students are seeking different solutions to different projects, it's not boring. So when a teacher becomes excited about a piece they're working on, they'll pass this joy on to their teachers. And then the teachers, maybe the burnout will go away. So that is it. That's a wrap. That's all the questions we're going to answer today. But if you have more questions and you're interested about how things work at my high school, you can go on the web to artofsouthbee.com. Uh, check out the website. There's lots of links to a lot of the projects we do and, and the things that we do there. A-R-T-O-F-S-O-U-T-H-B.com, artofsouthbee.com. And if you're interested in even learning more, you might want to check out Making Artists or 
the open art room both books are available from davisart.com and they've got lots of stuff in them chock full of good stuff from both myself and melissa purdy so check those out and we'll see you next week thanks <laughs>